Well, hello. Happy New Year. Sort of. This is Political Climate. It's our first official episode of 2021, and I'm your host, Julia Piper. And well, I'm diving right into this episode the way that 2021 threw us all in off the deep end. We always knew that this year would start with a bang. Between the Georgia Senate runoff election, the inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden, cabinet announcements, COVID relief, and of course, earnest discussions around the next phase of American climate policy. A deadly assault on the United States Capitol incited by the president was not on the calendar. Although the seeds of division and misinformation were sown long ago. So what's the path forward? Well, first, critically and importantly, Democrats John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock both won their Senate seats in the Georgia runoff. That news was somewhat overshadowed by the Capitol Hill attack, but it will have an enormous impact on how events unfold in the months ahead. And for our purposes, what kind of climate and energy policy gets passed? So to bring in our crystal balls and look at what this all means and also look back at how we got here, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbut and Shane Skelton. Brandon is our Democrat. He's a partner at Boundary Stone Partners and a clean tech investor. He's also the former chief of staff of the Department of Energy. Hello, Brandon. Hey Julia, is this the season finale? Yeah, we we've got a we've got an announcement coming up. Season finale is going to be a cliffhanger. What's Julia's new job, and is Shane a Republican? <laughs> well, speaking of Shane, uh, Shane was is. Is was the Republican on this show. Uh, he is a former advisor to Representative Paul Ryan and is currently a partner at S2C Pacific, an energy and environmental consulting firm. But yes, Brandon, in the spirit of getting right to it, political climate will soon be taking a break. Later this month, I'm actually going to take a position working directly in the clean energy space to advance some of the climate solutions we've been talking about on this show. And, you know, it's emotional to be leaving journalism where I've been covering the climate and energy beat for, geez, like a full 10 years now, um, somehow. And I feel really passionate about, you know, media and the need for strong and accurate reporting as, frankly, you know, a pillar of democracy. And so I will sincerely miss that element of the job. But I also really love the issues that we talk about, and I'm super excited to play a more active role in the climate fight. And, you know, I just want to be part of more of the doing. So... I'm not going to say where I'm headed just yet. I'll announce that on my LinkedIn and Twitter at some point this month. So anyone who cares, you know, find me there uh, and look for an update. But in the meantime, political climate is not going away entirely. There's going to be at least one episode coming up in our Ditch series on divestment and green finance. And there are also going to be a couple of special bonus episodes and interviews that I plan to share in the coming weeks ahead. So look out for all of that. And honestly, we'd love to find ways to keep this podcast going. But, you know, at least for now, as we settle into this new reality in in many ways, you know, this will be our last podcast that we record together, just the three of us for at least a little while. And, you know, we build this as a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America. But as we'll get into on this episode in more depth, bipartisan may not be the most honest way to brand this show anymore. You know, Shane, we'll, we'll get into this with you. Um, Julie, are you sure you're just not covering up for like AWS canceled us like they did with Parler and you're just like afraid to say it? <laughs> yeah. Amazon actually is no longer carrying our podcast. They're like anything bipartisan. <laughs> You know, yeah, we've been, we've been canceled, actually, is what I've been meaning to tell you. <laughs> no, we're not canceled. No. In fact, I'm incredibly proud to say that we have built a strong audience of, of, of professionals, of students, of congressional staff, of policymakers themselves. So, 
no, uh, not canceled. Super proud of what we've done, but it does feel like time to take a break, um, not only for professional reasons, but just to reflect on, you know, where you can have the most impact in this current political climate. Um, And I say break because we have lots of other ideas for things that we could cover on this show, you know, maybe tackling a bigger theme rather than, you know, a weekly talk show. So I really hope our listeners stick around, keep us in your ears, stay subscribed and follow Political Climate on social media. We're on Twitter, most active there at poly, P-O-L-I underscore climate, because I think we'll be back in some capacity. We're just figuring out what that looks like. And finally, just to brag for a moment, you know, we have an archive of so many awesome interviews, things that truly informed my thinking, uh, heard from so many people from technologists to grassroots leaders, uh, you know, politicians. So I really hope that if you haven't, you know, heard some of those episodes, you go back and check them out. So on this show, we're going to have a bit of a free for all. It's basically going to be a conversation among friends about the latest political news and what it means for the issues that we care about. We've always prided ourselves on having respectful discussions on difficult issues. So on this episode, I'm particularly interested to hear from Shane and and what you make of the current political landscape, particularly in light of last week's events. Before we get to Shane, which is so exciting to get into this conversation, as part of the housekeeping, just want to say clean energy for Biden, Mm. you know, the juggernaut that helped elect Joe Biden president and helped win the Georgia State uh, you know, Senate elections uh, is sponsoring an inaugural ball on January 20th. Go to cleanenergyforbiden.com. It's going to be great. We have over 800, you know, people already bought a ticket to attend. We're going to have entertainment, guests from the administration. It's going to be a big celebration. If you're a Democrat, if you're a Republican, you're invited. This is for people who love clean energy uh, and want to have, like, for all the horrible things that happened in 2020 and last week, let's get together, have a drink, and, and celebrate some positive things that we could do in 2021 together. Yeah, clean energy for America is what they're calling it, right? It's yes. not really clean energy for Biden so much we're anymore. Rebranding. Yeah, I imagine um, it's going to be virtual, Brandon, because I can't imagine there's anywhere we can get 800 people in right oh now. Oh yeah, all virtual. Good point, Shane. All virtual, being COVID safe. It's on a very cool like software platform that's very interactive. We're going to have entertainment and all kinds of good stuff. Go to the website, check it out, and join us. So great, we've covered clean energy for Biden event. We'll be taking a break from the show and. Oh, yeah, there was an insurrection at the Capitol. So, yes, Shane. So, let's talk about that. Um, all right. Shane. What happened? What is going on? Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know where to start if we start with practical or, or just sort of emotional, but that I don't think anyone, and, and, and Brandon will correct me soon because we, you know, we've had this conversation for the last year, but I don't think anyone, at least anyone, how about this? I, I never imagined I could see that visual. Um, I, I never, it never occurred to me that that was even even possible, um, and it it's it's sort of disconcerting. You know, there, there's there's places in that building that I worked for a long time. There's places that you know when you're a staffer and you're there, you know, with permission, obviously doing your job, you just kind of avoid because it's there's some um, some ceremony to it, right? I mean, I would never go walk. I was, it's against the rules, by the way, but I would never walk into the well. Um, and just start sort of fraternizing with members of the speaker during a vote. Um, would never, even during hours where the building's closed, go sit in the Senate president, the president pro tempore's desk um, and take a, a selfie, 
even when you're there again, legally with permission, all that sort of stuff. So I'm talking about more from an emotional perspective of what I view that building as, that institution as. And I know a lot of the people that I know that I've worked with and spent time with and talked to recently too. It's not a building. I mean, there's buildings everywhere. We could build another one. Um, it's sort of the house of our democracy and has been since it was last breached in 1814 as part of the War of 1812. And so it's not something that happens a lot. It's not something, it's not like a regular protest. And I, for it was just a bit much to interpret. And I think I am still processing it. But I, I know this. I know that no one that I spend time with, no one that I know, even people who voted for and or worked for Trump, want to be associated with any of that. Now, I realize that's not, you don't get to walk away like that. I, I, I know that's what people are going to say, and I agree with it. Um, you know, I never voted for Trump. I was very clear about that. But I will admit, I never, I never saw this. And at times I thought, you know, what's happening now is so awful, but there are some good things like, you know, lower tax rates and, and things like that. And so I think it's important for all of us to, to be a little bit culpable and understand that if anyone had taken the time to really see the threat earlier and do, you know, rather than do a cost benefit analysis about your own personal or business interests, you know, think about what was right for the country, for your kids, for, you know, people, uh, Maybe this was more foreseeable, but for me, it was not foreseeable. I never imagined it. And even when they were protesting outside, it was a, a view that I never wanted to see, but it, it, you know, we can protest in the United States. It never occurred to me that they might actually get in there. And I, I don't know, I'm, I'm rambling and I want to have some back and forth here. I don't want to keep speaking, but I, I think what I'm trying to communicate is I'm still overwhelmed by emotion. I know it's all awful, but I don't know that I'm like ready to process what it means and, and if it can get worse and, and, and where we go from here. I think one of the things that we've been discussing on the show for a long time, and I'm really curious to dig in with Shane is, you know, what is the Republican Party? Because there has been this, you know, faction of the party going back to like the John Birch Society that has this conspiracy oriented, um, you know, sort of fringe uh, view. And uh, I think with, you know, social media and, and then this propaganda machine that has been developed over the last couple of decades with Fox News, Breitbart, now Newsmax, now OAN, and you know all this has, has really weaponized this and grown that and scaled it. And, and, and Donald Trump you know, rode that into victory. And so the question is, is the Republican Party, like what's the dominant gene? What's the recessive gene as far as this like, you know, radicalized faction? And the thing that has influenced my thinking the most on this there's a lot of people that have been predicting this. A lot of people that we follow and talk about on the show, like the Dave Roberts of the world and Ronald Brownsteins, you know, these thought leaders. But my wife, you know, Sally, she, you know, started a nonprofit uh, that was trying to prevent mass atrocities and genocide. So she spent a lot of time studying how does that happen and the behavioral science behind it. And, you know, she was, she really educated me on what dangerous speech does. And when Donald Trump came down that escalator from day one, she was like, this is a problem. And she was always sort of six months ahead of the curve on like, we've hit another milestone where this is going to escalate. And people have been saying this, like there were norms that were being shattered along the way over the last four years. And she was always saying, this is where it's going to end up. And, and for our listeners, what my wife would say if she was sitting here is it can get worse. Last week could have been much worse. And, and, and so, you know. And we're sitting here today ahead of the inauguration where there's National Guard being deployed. They're expecting more violence. In fact, not just in D.C., but almost every state capital, if not literally every state capital. So, 
you know, it's, it's a difficult time. And so I think the question, what I'm curious, Shane, is like, what is the Republican Party going to do this? Because they don't care what I think. Nobody, you know, in that faction is going to listen to me or people like me, but they may listen to leaders of the Republican Party. So what what do you think is their obligation and what do you think is going to happen? I mean, I, I know for certain um, it's unsustainable. So to, to answer your question directly, um, the the dominant gene was certainly the um, intellectual conservative in, in 2016. And the recessive gene, if you want to call it that, was whatever the hell this is. Because, and, and I've said this on the show before, I learn about this stuff from you guys. I, I swear, I, I've never heard about any of these white ring, right-wing sites. I mean, of course, I'm familiar with Fox News. Uh, but I've never heard of these websites or these online portals or these chat rooms. And I hear about them from you all because this was something that I always just thought- Just for a pause there, is it true it's the, it's, you know, the dominant gene when like two-thirds of the House of Representatives voted to certify- you know, voted, you know, against certifying the election. Well, yes. So what I was going to say is in 2020, it looks like it might be the dominant gene. And I, I certainly was unable to see that because I don't, I don't really talk to people who follow these. I don't even know. I mean, they talk about eating brains. I, I don't know what this is. And so you did, I, I'm I so do, curious about that. It never came up through any just the regular reading you would do or not even other Republicans being like, this is kind of weird that our elected, because it w- includes elected Republicans, you know, talking about QAnon theories, for instance, um, that just... Yeah, nothing. I mean, in polite Republican circles, nothing. But I think the, the issue is now, where are the numbers? Because if the polite Republican circles is 8% of the party and the rest of it's 92%, then that's not the Republican Party. That's just a group of polite people who don't have a political home. And so to answer your question directly, I don't know. And, and we're going to see this battle play out, not just in, you know, podcasts and media, but also... If you guys saw the, the statement Liz Cheney put up, I think I'd mentioned uh, on our podcast about a year ago, I think she'll be the next Republican speaker, not not Leader McCarthy. Um, she put out a, a scorching statement on the party, on the president and her intent to vote for to vote for impeachment. The old guard is going to fight to take their party back and they're either going to succeed or they're going to fail. And if they fail, I don't know what what that means, because I know for me, I can't be part of this. I can be part of a revitalized Republican Party in the future. Um, you know, led with traditional conservative values. I could be part of a third party. I could be independent and assess candidates on my own. I'm not a Democrat because I'm not into, you know, bigger government, more spending, um, a lot of the things that I'm seeing nowadays. Uh, I'm, I'm for some of it. I think there's a, a lot of middle ground and that's how politics should work. Opposing parties shouldn't have nothing in common. There should be a decent amount of middle ground. And so I don't know, but, but this fight will play out because there are certainly good men and women in Congress who don't want to be associated with it. Are you having conversations, Shane, about like, should we try to take the party back from what is now this appears to be this dominant gene radicalized faction, or should we split off into a third party? Like, are those conversations happening? Are you a part of them? Um, I mean, only, only with people that I know. I mean, yes, certainly, certainly that exact conversation happens all the time. Um, I don't know if you look at the people who are elected in office right now, I don't know how they view it. I mean, I think really you're talking about a ballot issue because I think most, not not most Republicans, I'm learning that I've been wrong on this, but the ones who want to go the right direction, you know, if you say I'm an independent now, that actually just creates a lot of electoral problems when you're trying to get on a ballot and people are conditioned to vote a certain way and all that sort of stuff. So the question is, do you try to form a conservative party, conservative, you know, a small C, traditional sense of the word, um, and 
make it the party of people who, you know, or, or sympathize with traditional conservative policy like I do, or do you fight to take the party back? I'd love to take the party back, but the numbers show that that's unlikely. I think you could convince, you know, three fourths of elected Republicans um, that this is a disaster. Um, but right now, it looks like two thirds of, of voters think this is exactly what we should be doing. Isn't so, this actually a point to don't we talk about this where if you're elected, sometimes you don't do just what the people want. You stand up for like, in this case, democracy. Like, couldn't the lawmakers who are elected, the Republicans, just say, OK, cool, I understand constituents. But what I'm going to do is what I think is the right thing to do, because I was elected to do that. And they could stand up. But it, I, I, it does seem like. And I fear and, and commentators who cover politics all the time say, like, don't expect Republicans to just dismiss their constituents. They are still very afraid of them. They're thinking two years ahead. They're thinking 2024. And they may actually bow to what the what the, the masses on their side currently want. Well, and I've been telling people, you know, anyone who will listen, um, that the best thing that the Democrats could do as a favor to Republicans, if they wanted to do a favor for Republicans, would be to impeach, remove Donald Trump and ban him from running for office again. Now, I don't know why the Democrats want to do that um, because he's gone anyway. But for the Republicans, that is the best way to revise to revitalize the party, to remove the threat of Trump and his cronies forever. Um, Democrats would want to do it, number one, because there has to be accountability and consequence for what happened on Wednesday. And if you look at some of these numbers, it's scary because it's not just a Trump problem. I mean, 71 percent of Republicans in the latest polling still you know believe Trump is doing a good job and I think it's like 47 percent believe that Antifa was like behind the insurrection you know and coup attempt which is you know completely false there is this this propaganda has taken a hold on a significant is it really that high yes I thought his well maybe I was thinking about job numbers but his job numbers for President Trump are quite low but yeah I'm talking about Republicans 71 percent of Republicans still approve of what he's doing right now yeah no I, I, I I'm looking at all this more closely because I have to right like when I didn't really track this stuff I didn't need to but now I think everyone has an obligation just as an American to, to keep track of what's going on and I don't know how you get those people back so let's say that every elected leader, and of course this isn't going to happen, but let's say everyone did the right thing, whatever you know the the objective right thing is. That doesn't change the fact that you know forty to forty eight percent of Americans are either just furious with the way things are going generally and hate elites, or they are all for Trump. And I don't know how those numbers break down, and they believe that anything other than you know him being president is fraudulent, um, you know, corrupt and all that sort of stuff. I wish I had answers. I, I, I don't know. I, I think the way you fix it from a, from a policymaking perspective is you get, you know, your electeds to act with a spine and stand up and do the right thing in Washington. But that doesn't solve your, your sort of trickle down problem where they also have to take on the propaganda machine. Um, how, how can you take on a website? If I'm, if I create a website and say crazy stuff on it, like, what do you do about that? Well, that's that? why I feel how like you... the, the tech company stepping up and blocking, say parlor, for instance, is super significant. I don't know how it's going to play out legally, but at some point there is a case to be made that if you are, you know, planning violent acts on a platform that doesn't count as free speech anymore. So I think we're going to really it test the system. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater. 
Um, right. And so when you guys were trying to make these points to me months ago, I thought you were crazy because I've never seen these websites. I didn't realize that that's actually what was yeah. happening. Also, like, you know, I haven't been a lawyer in a long time. You know, Shane is probably fresher on this, but like, I just remember like the government can infringe on your free speech. A private company can. So oh, like absolutely. the legal case, you know, like, I mean, they can shut this stuff down. It's well within their rights. This has been one of my biggest like sort of confusions about the whole Twitter, Facebook thing is that um, the Constitution is only a contract between the government and its people, period. Um, it, it's not a contract between the people and corporations. And so, you know, Google, Facebook, Twitter, um, they can do whatever the hell they want. Now, what could happen as a response to that is that Congress could, you know, amend Section 230 and remove their liability shield. Uh, that's a different legal issue. They can do whatever they want to do. Right now, I think they feel a little bit beholden to politicians because they can't be sued, and they can't be sued because politicians gave them that shield. That's really, I think, the the, the sort of thorny tech issue there. Shane, are you worried that this has caused like a generational stain on the party? Do you think that Americans have short-term memories and they will get past this? Or is this one of these like, you know, defining moments that brands a party for, you know, a decade or two, um, you know, going forward? Yeah, I, I think it'll be a defining moment. I don't know if I mean this in the way you mean it, but I, I don't think anyone, you know, my age or older or maybe even a little younger will ever forget. Um, I, I don't know if it'll be tied um, in 10, 15, 20, 30 years in history books or the way that we all remember it. I don't know if it'll be tied to Trump or if it'll be tied to the Republican Party. But I can tell you if if it's tied to the Republican Party for that long, I can't imagine that that too many people stay. I mean, if if you say to me, you know, can you be part of a party that does the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act? I'll say, you know, I actually thought it was a pretty crappy bill. But yeah, that's the sort of thing I'm signing up for. Say, hey, are you, can, do you want to stay part of the party that stormed the Capitol? So no, I'm not. Nope. I want, nope. No, thank you. So, it, you know, I don't know yet. We're learning more. Like, for example, I'll tell you something I learned today that you guys might know. Um, Trump knew he got active intelligence that there were bombs outside the RNC and DNC and that the vice president was under threat of death and didn't do anything. He didn't do anything at all. He didn't even warn anyone in the buildings. Um, and so, no, I mean, no, God, no, you can't be associated with that. The question is just, is that how the Republican Party is viewed moving forward? Or is that how Trump is viewed moving forward? I don't, I don't know how that'll play out. I mean, that, that's a, that raises a point that I was just shocked by was how there was so much of the line of succession in one building. And yet the security apparatus was, you know, wholly uh, like delinquent and, and did not function. You know, Mike Pence, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Grassley, who's the Senate president pro tempore, as well as, you know, president, vice president elect Kamala Harris. And yet it happened for three hours there <laughs> well so we we will have differing opinions on that. I, I agree with you now knowing what we know now um that that's and everything about that's awful one of the things that i think we'll realize we lost in five or ten years when all this you know when we when we're able to look at this event for what it is and we have all the facts one of the great things about our capital is it is an open campus it is accessible it's not militarized now i guess we all wish it was on wednesday but I actually think it was certainly that, I do think militarized I think when is... Black Lives Matter protesters showed up. I mean, it was definitely but, militarized for that. But but it's I mean, a anyone fucking standard on any given for... day, you or I can walk into the Capitol. And if I'm a Black Lives Matter protester, I can't do sunrise, you know, went in and would camp out outside people's office. I'm not saying they were violent. I'm not I'm not comparing the two. I'm simply saying 
it was an open campus for everyone. Yeah, I, unless- I support that. Shane- I tweeted that out. I was like, you can't, it will be a loss for democracy if you have to like arm the U.S. Capitol to the, to the teeth. You know, that's actually a loss. I do agree with you on that, but that doesn't mean you couldn't have prepared better like you do for a state of the union. Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say that the preparation was, was proper at all. I, I meant to say that one of the long-term losses that our democracy suffered on Wednesday was that I do not, I think it'll be like airplane, like flying pre-9-11 and post-9-11. I don't think access to your government will ever be the same. And I think in a democracy, that's really meaningful. Shane, you've worked in, you know, leadership, you know, office. Let, let's say you were working for the Republican leader in the House right now. What would you advise them to do about the 138 Republicans that voted against certifying the Electoral College vote? Like, what well, would- I think it it depends. So, so let me, let me take a step back and I'm going to answer your question. It depends who the leader is. I mean, they know who they work for, right? Um, and they knew who they worked for before Wednesday. And so if it were a Paul Ryan that I was working for, he would be the one calling a meeting and trying to brainstorm on how we, how we punish them. I mean, you saw his statement immediately. Um, we knew who we worked for. We knew what he stood for. And that's why we worked there. Um, so if, if you're me, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be working in this leadership. Uh, yeah. I'm not talking about this okay particular this. leader. I'm so, talking about like, if you were in charge, if I was in charge, yeah, what would you do? Well, I'd take away committee assignments for every single member. Um, and I would probably take away offices. There was debate, uh, and when we were there as to whether or not you could do that, but I basically banished them from DC because if you don't have committee assignments, you have nothing to do. If you don't have an office, you have nowhere to work. And if you don't have um, either of those things, you don't have any donations. So, you know, I wouldn't prosecute them because it's not the leader's job to prosecute people. That's the that's the criminal justice system's job. But I would certainly, you know, make life pretty. I'd make they wouldn't be congressmen by anything other than, you know, the fact that they were elected to Congress. Shane, can we gossip? Can I can I throw out a rumor at you? Ooh, go for it. Can, can you what? This is a rumor I've heard. Gossip. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a rumor I've heard. Is it true, have you heard this, that the staffers on the Hill are, are so rightfully shaken up by this experience that they're going to be looking at, if you're a lobbyist and you, you, you donated to any of those 138 members, that they're not taking meetings with those folks? Have you heard stuff like that is happening? I have not heard stuff like that, but I, but I also want to know, you know, I have not heard that, but, I, but we're all hearing the same thing about, you know, how is downtown going to treat these members and then how, what's the response to that? So I, I guess if you donated to someone, you know, in the past because they represent um, a factory of yours, you couldn't have known that this is where we were going to end up. So I don't think there should be any harm paid for that. But I think, you know, we've seen lately corporate America and especially PACs and, and the, um, the involved parts. Yeah, they absolutely have to think about. Uh, I can tell you that we've had conversations with clients, um, I won't say who, and they want to develop a strategy for how you avoid these people like the plague. Um, you know, and, and obviously you also have to be mindful of where your jobs are, where your interests lie. But everything I've heard to date has been pure outrage. Um, not really a lot of concern about needing, you know, a particular member's help with a certain bill. And more about, I want a functional Congress that, you know, doesn't have people like this in it. Because 
the, the one quick thing, and I won't make the full legal point, but you'll know what I'm getting at, is that it's totally reasonable to say, if you think that Pennsylvania, for example, didn't follow their own laws and that the election should be invalidated for that reason, you can take that to court. And they did. And they lost. And so if you're a member of Congress, now you're not voting on the Pennsylvania law. You don't have that right. You're voting to certify the Pennsylvania election. The court has already told you that it was lawful. So I, I don't know how some of these folks wiggle out of this argument. I mean, I, I think you can say, I don't like the way that mail-in balloting works. You can say all that. But I don't know when, when it comes to it, how these members, when you say, I'm not going to donate to you because you tried to vote against certifying a valid lawful election, how do you, I don't know how you defend yourself in that scenario. Julia, should we pivot to, cli- to climate? Because I have a question. Yes, I'm let me totally quickly. Hogging the mic. <laughs> no, I've like been thinking about this conversation for days. I mean, yeah, we just had to get that out out there, and you know, I think I just I just want to wrap up this section by bringing in the comments from former California Governor uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, whose institute at the University of Southern California supports this podcast. And as people listening may know, he had an amazing video that came out. It's actually gone viral. Uh, it's sharing his thoughts on the mob attack on the U.S. Capitol, and he can compared it to Kristallnacht or the Night of Broken Glass where Jewish-owned businesses and institutions were destroyed by the Nazis in 1938. And so before we move to climate, I just want to end with a clip from Arnold Schwarzenegger because I think he made some some really poignant uh, points. So here's that piece. Our democracy has been tempered by wars, injustices, and insurrections. I believe as shaken as we are by the events of recent days, we will come out stronger because we now understand what can be lost. We need reforms, of course, so that this never ever happens again. We need to hold accountable the people that brought us to this unforgivable point. And we need to look past ourselves, our parties and disagreements and put our democracy first. And we need to heal together from the drama of what has just happened. We need to heal, not as Republicans or as Democrats, but as Americans. Now to begin this process, no matter what your political affiliation is, I ask you to join me in saying to President-elect Biden, President-elect Biden, we wish you great success as our president. If you succeed, our nation succeeds. We support you with all our hearts as you seek to bring us together. And to those who think they can overturn the United States Constitution know this, you will never win. President-elect Biden, we stand with you today, tomorrow, and forever in defense of our democracy from those who would threaten it. May God bless all of you, and may God bless America. So some words there from former California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. And, you know, we're just so thankful for his support, the support of everyone at the Schwarzenegger Institute for making this podcast possible for, you know, really believing, I think like we do, that that it is valuable to find that common ground. In this case, the ground around, you know, standing up for democracy. And I think a lot of people were really moved by that speech from the governor. And I count myself among them. So... You know, just really fortunate to have worked with that entire team. 
It's a must watch. And also in that video is the Conan sword. And a 2019 highlight, I think, for the three of us was in his office, we got to hold that sword, which is massive. Yeah, and I think I got to hold the gun he had in uh, Terminator. Terminator. Yeah, oh, so fun. It, this that has was been amazing. That was amazing. Even the second, third time, it was cool. But that first time, I was like a kid. I'm literally a kid who watched this man as a hero like my whole life. And then getting to wield these weapons was just incredible. Totally. And, you know, since we're taking a little moment to be nostalgic before, again, we take a little break with the show, um, you know, we got shortlisted for an L.A. Press Club Award. And that was done at a, a little hotel room in Vienna after Arnold Schwarzenegger's marquee event that he does there, uh, the Austrian World Summit, and just talking about meeting Greta, you know, the, the climate protester and, and really international hero on the climate front. You know, sitting down with Arnold after and getting his thoughts on the state of like global climate action, interviewing the head of the UN, uh, feeling so fortunate and lucky to have done that and just thought it was hilarious that we recorded that one particular episode we got shortlisted for, slightly hungover. And you you <laughs> tried to take bed. pictures of me asleep while we were recording. Slightly Not only did I crush it, but also managed to open my eyes whenever you tried to snap the camera. I know. Yeah, Shane's like dozing off in between comments. <laughs> Hey, we had a big night at the casinos, right? This is our tell-all episode. <laughs> we cleaned up at that casino. That was a <laughs> run, an epic run. <laughs> the casino, that's a story for another time. We had to have a, a political climate like happy hour at some point. Listeners can be invited. I guess we'll have to make it virtual. We'll tell all our stories. Um, but now let's turn to climate policy. So, of course, Democrats now have a very, very slim majority in Congress. Uh, of course, it will rely on Vice President Kamala Harris's vote to kick it to 51 in the Senate. Um, but this could really be a, a game changer for what gets done. Mind you, the Democrats will then be sort of limited by the most conservative member, and that is Joe Manchin of West Virginia. So I know, Brandon, you have a lot of questions about this, but first, can you just give me your initial reaction about what Democrats winning means? Yeah, at a high level, we can get into the substance, and I want to ask Shane my question, but I was in the Obama administration, both when we had, you know, majority in the Congress, you know, the House and the Senate, and when we did not. Uh, and it was a completely different environment. Um, and so I think also there are many people going into the Biden administration that worked in the Obama administration and learned some hard lessons about dealing with the Republicans and also like, you know, the opportunity you get when you have control of the Congress and you t can't take that for granted. And it might just be a two-year window for all we know. And so I think that there's going to be aggressive, bold action to take advantage. Hopefully we'll have a majority, you know, after 2022, but you can't count on it. So I think they're going to maximize these two years and do everything possible. Do you think that Democrats did learn that? I feel like there's still yes. people who are concerned. And obviously the thing about Democrats is you have to build coalitions. There's a lot of diverse stakeholders involved. So do you think they really can move as fast or that fast? I do. And I think, you know, my sense is, and this is what I want to ask Shane about is I think they'll, they'll try. I think everybody realizes like bipartisan is better and, and durability is better, but if the Republicans aren't going to go along uh, and Mitch McConnell is going to obstruct everything, then I think all options will be on the table. I think they'll start with reconciliation, but like if they're Joe Biden's going to get his agenda done and he's going to do whatever he can and he's not going to let a Republican stand in the way. I think he's going to want to work with them, but. How can Joe Biden get his agenda done if my understanding is Joe Manchin does not want to get rid of the filibuster? So 
If that's the case, you mentioned budget reconciliation. There are things that Democrats can do there. Obviously, Joe, Joe Biden's cabinet has a better chance of getting approved. Um, there are executive orders and things like that and stuff through the agencies that can be done. But on Congress, how would he do? How would Joe Biden get his agenda enacted if Joe Manchin doesn't do the filibuster? Yeah. So I want to start with Shane on this and then we can go back to that because I think, Shane, what would be your advice? Because now you have this divided Republican Party, right? It's fractured in a way that was almost incomprehensible uh, a couple weeks ago. Would you, do you think there's an opportunity now to pick off some of those Republican senators like Lisa Murkowski, like Rob Portman, you know, like Susan Collins or Mitt Romney, you know, who have, you know, demonstrated some support for clean energy in the past. You, you've been working with them behind the scenes on certain climate policies. Do you think now, like maybe McConnell is not as strong as he used to be? He, he didn't, you know, he's made some political mistakes recently. So maybe they're not as united behind him as they were when Obama was president. Do you think that those votes are there for the taking? And under that scenario, Julia, I think, you know, then it's wide open. But if it defaults back to what we encountered in the Obama administration where the Republicans are completely united behind Mitch McConnell on a purely obstructionist agenda. Well, then I think we're going to start with reconciliation. And and then if, if we're having a problem getting the agenda done, I think that there will be some conversations with the folks who oppose the filibuster about what do we need to do here? And there could be modifications to the filibuster, right? It doesn't mean just eliminate, it, but maybe there's tweaks to it where you actually have to stand there and talk the entire time or whatnot. But I, I think that, you know, all options on the table will be there to get the agenda done if we can't do it through normal status quo. Shane? So, yeah, we've been gaming this out, as you can imagine, internally uh, with clients trying to figure out. I mean, to answer your question point blank, I do think um, it's going to be a lot easier to pick off, you know, the Mitt Romneys of the world. Once you vote for impeachment and everyone hates you for it, and then three months later, everyone agrees that you were right. Um, you don't feel as compelled if you're Mitt Romney, for an example, to, you know, when you're in the minority to vote in a block. So I think, you know, the Mitt Romneys, the Susan Collins of the world on climate stuff, honestly, I know no one wants to hear it, but even Lindsey Graham, um, Tom Tillis, I think there are some. But by some, I'm not sure if I mean there are 10. And that's what we're trying to game out is what about some of these newly elected members that Maybe they appear to be Trumpy because that's the election cycle we were in, but maybe they're not. I, I don't know yet. And so can you get 10? Um, I think it's going to be hard to get 10 on a bill that includes all of the things that you need to get 218 House Democrats. And, and what I mean by that is I think there's five or six Republicans who will roll with you on uh, some sort of climate policy. I'm not sure if they're going to be down for all the the EJ and social justice and you know wage uh, issues that, that you see in some of these bills, like the things that Democrats do to satisfy all their constituents. I don't know if a bill with all that stuff in it can get 10 Republican votes, but I think the underlying policies on some of these things can get some. I was also gaming out earlier. Interestingly, let's talk about just climate for a second. If you look at reconciliation, I'm not sure that you can get 50 votes. I'm not sure Joe Manchin will, will roll with you. But maybe Romney would if it was, you know what I mean? If it was like a climate related bill, you might be able to get a couple Republicans to get you to 50 if you didn't have, you know, just Manchin or something on something that was environmentally but friendly. But he so, runs the Committee of Jurisdiction. So how does that influence it, Shane? 
Well, let's take you, a second, actually, move... in case in case anyone doesn't know, Shane, could you just explain what budget reconciliation is? And then you mentioned the Committee of Jurisdiction, Brandon, but let's just set the scene here in case anyone's not aware. Yeah. So budget reconciliation, and I'll answer the committee question too, but budget reconciliation is basically a tool whereby you get three opportunities per budget resolution to pass a bill under a streamlined process. The important part for this discussion of that streamlined process is that it only requires 50 votes in the Senate or you know, a majority vote in the Senate, and it's guaranteed floor time. Um, so that you can't use the procedural tactics you would use to stop it. The three things you can do, and you can do this in one bill, you can do all three, you can do three separate bills, but each budget you can do a, a debt limit increase, if that's necessary, a revenue bill, so something that deals only with provisions of the tax code, and then a spending bill, something that deals only with spending. You can put all three of those in the same bill, but then you've checked all three boxes for the year. You got to wait till you pass the next budget to go through it. So what you do is in the budget resolution, you pass reconciliation instructions out of the budget committee. Those are sent, the instructions are sent to the committees of jurisdiction. So the tax provisions will be sent to the Committee on Ways and Means in the House and Senate Finance. The energy provisions will be sent to ENR and EPW, um, and then Energy and Commerce in the House. And, and those committees now have a directive from the budget committee. So the directive, it won't say what the policy has to be, but it'll say spend $1.1 trillion over 10 years, or reduce the deficit you know, by 800 billion over 10 years. And those numbers aren't random. They've already worked with the Joint Committee on Taxation and the Congressional Budget Office to look at the policies they want and what the budget implications are. Once those committees send those policies back to the Budget Committee, and Brandon, this answers your question, the Budget Committee is actually the Committee of Jurisdiction that puts it on the floor. And then it's a, it's a, it's a open vote. So regardless of what, you know, substantive committee you'd be on, um, you're going to have one of the 100 votes on the floor. And, and that's Bernie Sanders. What's that? That's Bernie Sanders, right? On budget? Likely to be Bernie Sanders. And, and, and again, every other committee of jurisdiction will also be controlled by a Democrat. So you don't need an extra vote on any particular committee. You just need 50 on the floor. Where does Manchin fit into that? Manchin will be the chair of Senate Energy and Natural Resources. So if you were going to do an energy bill, it's he essentially has to sign off on it and then he's not going to vote against the bill that goes to the floor. That's his bill. Right. Yeah, but that, you're that's saying a, and Shane- that's a good point. Right. And so if you send part of the reconciliation bill to energy and natural resources, yeah, he's the guy running the committee. But honestly, a lot of the stuff you'd want to see done on climate would be in the environment and public works committee, which will be uh Harper. Yeah. Carper. And he's, he's great on these things, right? He, he understands this stuff. So I'm not saying it's going to be easy. In fact, I think it's going to be a lot less, uh, I think it's going to be a lot more difficult than people think it is. But there, my point is that there are three ways. It's not only two. One is reconciliation. One is bipartisan. And one is reconciliation that's like a tiny bit bipartisan if you need, you know, one or two votes. My, my big question back, Brandon, to you would be, you can't pass substantive policy under reconciliation. You can pass fiscal policy that has incidental aspects to it that are substantive. So you can spend as much money as you want. There's no limits on what you can spend. But the difference is, if I said, you know, I want to ban abortion, and if we did that, we'd save $100 million a year because we wouldn't be funding it, people would be like, no, 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 no. That's not fiscal policy. That's social policy that has a fiscal impact. Whereas Shane, if you do you said, think a clean energy standard could get through reconciliation? No, I don't. I think the type of comprehensive clean energy standard that would work 
that you know we've all probably looked at, worked on, thought about would be um, if it w- would include a lot of policy. You need policy, and I think that'd be tough. I mean, what obviously works is a carbon tax, but the question is, is that the policy that you want? Because I think it creates a lot of headaches, especially on the I'm on the right for sure, but on the left too, because it brings you know EJ concerns. Um, you know, you're raising the cost of a commodity, but you're not offsetting that with some some policy. So, uh, in my view. It's going to be difficult to pass. I think there's arguments that a dividend, if structured correctly, could address some of the inequality issues. But you know, and, and, and my, that was expert. my question to Brandon. Is I, I agree with you, Julia. But do you do you think after all this time waiting for the majority in the White House that the Democrats are going to decide that what they want is a carbon tax and dividend? Because um, I don't think that's what they want. I think they want something different than that. Yeah, I, it's. There's a lot of conversations, I think, happening right now, um, and it's going to be there's going to be a avalanche of, I think, legislative activity here out of the gate. Um, and I think it starts with the infrastructure, like the the moving forward uh, act that was passed in the House last session, I think is a good place to start for these conversations on reconciliation. And within that broad bill, there is a lot of clean energy uh, and transportation, uh, you know, policies, along with what was passed at the end of last year that was authorized and can be appropriated through something like this mechanism. Right, Shane? Yeah. And that's a point that I just want to take a second on is the the bill that just passed and we talked about with Saul Griffith on our recent episode still has to be funded correctly. Like they still have to put money towards some of the things that they they passed. But Shane, to you. Yeah. So so. There's there's two different types of spending programs. There's um, authorized programs that that get funded by appropriations, and then you know the committees of jurisdiction create those programs, and the appropriations committee funds them. And then there's mandatory spending programs, which the program's existence is its right to self spend, and they can be written either way. It's just a matter of of what you know Congress designs. Um, I think Democrats can do um, whatever they want to do on the spending side, and. and and I don't, I don't think there's a lot of rules that are going to hold them up. So infrastructure makes a ton of sense. Investment in you name it makes a ton of sense. Even on the tax code side, you can do EV tax credits. You can do ITC extension, PTC extension. You can look at um, battery storage. I think you can pretty much do whatever you want to do that you can get 50 votes for. Where I think it gets complicated is when you're trying to set policy. So you know, a clean energy standard to function well requires more than just a fee, I think. Um, what, what, I would, what I would like to see, and I know that this is not what's going to happen, especially in the political climate we're in right now, pun intended, um, is the Democrats say, look, we have all the power to do this. We can do it. And we have the votes to do it. We actually don't think this is the best way. And industry doesn't think this is the best way, but we don't really have a choice. So can we get, can we get a 60 vote threshold here on a bill that actually makes sense, that we both like, that your industry, that your utilities are lobbying for, that your trade associations are lobbying for, and be done with this? Or do we have to try to fill a square peg, which is climate policy, into a round hole, which is reconciliation, which is a tool that's not perfectly built for climate policy, and then see what happens? Because I think you could take your first bite at the apple and spend as much as you want. You don't need Republicans for that. Uh, you don't need their permission. You don't need their votes. Um, and then maybe say, hey, we've got till the end of the year to pass a bill under these reconciliation instructions. You want to be helpful or not? Um, so just to be clear, you're saying that 
Democrats can pass a carbon tax through the budget reconciliation process. Um, that is in their, it's within their ability to do that. However, they don't want to do that. <laughs> that is not their preferred climate policy. And so could they then go to Republicans and say, hey, look, we can pass this carbon tax. We don't really want it. Frankly, you don't really want it. Um, so let's actually just go through our committees and make legislation, uh, regardless of this budget reconciliation thing, and come up with a better climate policy that we can all get behind that has some industry buy-in, et cetera. Is, is that what you're getting at? I think you could use it rhetorically as a forcing mechanism. I haven't fully settled on how I feel about whether you actually pass it and then say, here it is. Um, you might want to pass something else that we can vote with you on to nullify it. Uh, or if you use the threat, I, I'm honestly, I haven't talked to enough people yet to see where the votes are, to see what makes sense. Um, but I do think that, you know, Democrats have the right to say, we've campaigned on this for years on, on some sort of climate bill and we won and we're going to do a climate bill. And if you force us to do one that we can do with 50 votes, then that's what we're going to do. Interesting. You know, Joe Biden did not campaign on a carbon price. It did not even, I think, even uh, appear in his Build Back Better plan. But I actually thought that it would get more traction going forward because of the influence of these moderate senators going forward. So interesting to hear you say that, you know, you just don't think it'll it'll happen, but could be used as this negotiating tool. Um, also, because I thought that, you know, industry generally, you know, would would be open to a carbon price. Well, I didn't say industry opposes a price on carbon. I just happen to know from working with a number of companies that if they're going to be in a scheme that reduces emissions to net zero by 2050, there are schemes that they're more comfortable with than others. And I, 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 that, that's not to say that people have told me they don't want a carbon tax, but when I, if I've had 100 conversations, it's come up zero times. How about that? Really? I've, I've had the opposite experience. I recently did a CEO roundtable with Calpine, uh, a big international conglomerate, um, really spanning everything from manufacturing to agriculture to even gas. They wanted the price on carbon, and they really hope to revive that discussion. Um, they think they haven't found a home recently because we've discussed in the past. You know, Democrats are really orienting around standards, investments, and environmental justice as a platform, and the carbon price kind of got pushed to the side. But if we are talking about a world where you have to get Republicans on board, uh, or at least moderate Democrats, it seems to me like a carbon price could could come back. And and uh, if if there's no mechanism to pass policy, because you just described through reconciliation, Democrats can't, then it sounds like a carbon price might be your only option, no? Well, my argument would be that you could use it as a as, as bait, or alternatively, think about what a carbon tax means. So those CEOs that you talk to, they're probably super looking forward to a $15 a ton carbon tax that preempts EPA from ever regulating them again. The environmental groups that I talk to don't think a carbon tax has much use at all, unless it's $80 to $100 per ton. So you could say carbon tax, but do you think these companies that want $100 per ton carbon tax? I don't think they do. And I don't think Democrats are going to say, you know what? We passed a $10 carbon tax. We did it. Let's move on to a different issue. I don't see that being the way it plays out. Or they just go for it and set it high or have it increase over time. You know? Yeah. Also, David Roberts had a great piece on this in his newsletter called Volts, and he really laid out all the different avenues that are available to Democrats um, to, to take climate action. Through the, um, through the reconciliation process, he talked about a refunded carbon fee, clean energy tax credits, and 
our D&D investments, infrastructure investments and the like. He also talked about how mandatory spending programs like Medicare and Medicaid could be tweaked to support a transition away from fossil fuels and that a green bank or some kind of infrastructure bank could be established through the reconciliation process as well. So definitely some some meaningful items there. And, you know, I'll link to this post in our show notes and everyone should subscribe to Volts if you haven't already. Shane, how much of the Moving Forward Act and the Build Back Better plan do you think you could get through reconciliation? Or how much of those two things do you think you could get 60 votes for? Yeah. And before you answer that, just a reminder, you know, the Build Back Better plan includes achieving a carbon pollution free power sector by 2035. He talks about making investments in apprenticeship programs and community based organizations to help people and specifically people of color access high quality training and job opportunities in the clean energy sector. He talks about providing all American municipalities uh, with public transportation. This is cities of more than 100,000 people. Uh, more job creation in climate smart agriculture, resilience, and conservation, uh, creating 1 million new jobs in the American auto industry and domestic auto manufacturing supply chains that really centers on the electric vehicle sector and electric vehicle charging stations as well. He also talks about boosting the efficiency of millions of buildings, both homes and businesses. So that's the overarching plan there. Um, the Moving Forward Act, you know, is a specific bill that passed in the House but has not passed in the Senate. It's a $1.5 trillion infrastructure bill that's supposed to rebuild roads and bridges and combat climate change, include some resilience measures. It would also tackle clean drinking water and promote clean energy. Some specific examples include investing in electric transit buses, investing in EV charging along highways, investing in electrification of ports, and extending the EV tax credit. So it is kind of, you know, fulfilling part of the Build Back Better vision, this particular bill. And Democratic lawmakers have already referenced it in recent days as a launch point for future climate discussions. I, I hate copping out here, but I really don't know when everyone settles in, because I'm not settled in, um, what the viewpoint's going to be. It could be, and I'm being rosy here because it could not be this, but it could be that the Mitt Romneys, the Susan Collins World, even Lindsey Graham, who... I would have thought of as quite a moderate, you know, prior to the Trump era. Um, it could be that some of these senators go, what the hell just happened? Like, let's let's try to do something here. Let's try to be a little bit more reasonable. Let's work with our counterparts. This is not good, but it could also be not that. And I, I, it's just too early for me to get a sense of, of where people are landing. I think in the House, you're going to have a mixed bag, um, as we've already seen. You've got the Tom Reeds of the world, the Fitzpatricks of the world. The um, Liz Cheney's of the world. She might not, you know, be into climate policy, but she's into restoring order. Um, and I, I have to imagine there are some senators that are that are of that that stripe. But I'd be lying to you if I said I have a good sense of right now how in February people are going to have responded to the month of January. Here's a question: Maybe Republicans could put forward policy, or do you think they could put forward policy that would? Harness some of the energy that's out there, which I think some of it is well-founded on the right around, you know, seeing their communities, you know, be hollowed out by changes in the economy. And, they, you know, there is an opioid crisis hitting the country. I feel like at the root of some of the craziness we've seen lately are some real issues. Now it's spiraled out of control. So I want to make a distinction there. But is there a way for Republicans to say, yes, you know, what, we are going to policy make our way out of this. We're going to present a vision. The RNC is going to have a platform that's not just what Donald Trump said, which is basically what they did. 
you know, Shane, do you think that that's a possibility? Is there a policy that's inspirational enough and solutions they could actually pass that would inspire people to move on from the opposition and anguish and, and violence, frankly, that we're seeing now? I mean, in, in, in the climate space, you know, I, I don't know because the stuff that works for communities in transition is complicated. And, you know, Brandon, I'll tell you this, just like I would in, in politics, when you're explaining, you're losing um, stuff that actually works is complicated. And, and that is an issue that we have with the, the numbers you guys gave me from polls earlier. 70% of the Republican voting base doesn't want to hear it. Um, they, they think that they should still be in the White House. Hmm, yeah, I know. I want to bring it back to policymaking, but at this point, it just seems cute. <laughs> you know, Julia, like the answers to some of the things you're raising are in the Build Back Better plan. Like well, Biden campaigned on bringing you know, supply chain, domestic manufacturing jobs back to the U.S. Like that's all in, you know, his plan is to have clean energy manufacturing jobs in the United States. That can be done through tax credits for solar and for wind and for battery storage. That can be through spending on, you know, grants and investments into these companies to do that stuff here. That can be done. We've, you know, talked in the past, there's a big political article about this too. The DOE loan program is $40 billion sitting there that you can loan for companies to build manufacturing facilities here in the U.S. to make, you know, clean transportation, you know, products. Uh, and, and on the Moving Forward Act, you know, in the House that they passed last year is several trillion dollars of, of infrastructure investments. It's broader than climate. You know, it goes into just like roads and bridges and, all, you know, all those good things, but also, um, you know, in EV charging and uh, buses, program buses, think, school yeah, buses, bus. electrifying school buses. These are all things that should be appealing to conservative voters uh just and a person yeah yeah and the democrats of course have already like i mean biden's put that plan out the house passed this you know moving forward act this is all stuff that we can start from together if, if i again and i don't mean to be you know sort of dismissive but if, if i were the democrats right now if, if i were actually a council on the budget committee i'd say to my boss um let's just do all that stuff through reconciliation there's not going to be a political price to pay you're talking about spending money on EV chargers. You're talking about expanding tax credits for solar. There's no downside. We don't need bipartisan cover for this. And they can do that. So that is all possible through reconciliation. They can do that. So I would take that big chunk of stuff and I would just do it and say, look, this is what I campaigned on. This is what I'm doing. A mansion supports tax credits and all that sort of stuff. I really don't think you pay for that at the ballot box. What I would be nervous about doing in a, in a partisan way is the bigger pieces. Like if you're going to say, hey, we're going to have a cap and trade system or a carbon tax or a clean energy standard, something that is going to affect every single sector of the economy, I would want a bipartisan vote, both because it makes it politically more palatable, but also because it's it's more durable. Um, and, and so that's why I've always been a you know, support of, of bipartisan policymaking. But with the stuff, just roads, bridges, charging, um, technology, R&D. I would just do it if it were me. I would just do it. And I don't think there's any consequence for that. And I don't, what voter is going to say, you know, I really liked um, Senator uh, so-and-so, but, you know, that EV tax credit, uh-uh, no good. It's not, it's not as visceral as like the ACA was in 2010, I don't think. Mm. You know, I saw a reporter tweet, you know, what are the prospects for passing a Green New Deal? And I sort of tweeted back, the best you can hope for is, well, first of all, the Green New Deal was never going to be a single bill that passed in one go. Uh, even architects of the Green New Deal that we've talked to on this show have, have said that the best you can get at is a, 
you know, complicated mix of policies, regulations, best practices across all levels of government and down to the states and local levels. And that might resemble a Green New Deal. But a lot of people know that term. So I guess, Brandon, if someone's going to say, can Democrats pass a Green New Deal? How close do you think they could get to the ideals that were embodied within it? I think the Build Back Better plan is a great start on the Green New Deal. And many parts of the Moving Forward Act are a great start on that. So if we can get that done through reconciliation, uh, or if there's parts of it that could be done, you know, with a broader coalition that includes some Republicans that might be in play now, given the events of the last couple of weeks, that would be great too. Well, and and that's sort of my point, Brandon, is if I'm Democrats, I take the big bucket of the possible, not the stuff I need 60 votes for, the big bucket of the possible and go to the Romneys and the Collins the world say, hey, we're doing this. That, that's not open to debate. It's happening. As a favor to you to build some bipartisan comedy here, like, do you want in? Because if you want in and you got 10 friends, we'll pass it the other way. And if not, we'll do it this way. We're doing it. Um, and I, I still think there's a price to pay for Damage brand with young voters and, you know, independent voters. This would be the way to do it. Yeah, I mean, and, and there's some education that needs to be done um, to people who care. Like I said, if you're explaining, you're losing. But, you know, we've looked at different policies with clients that would enhance certain benefits. Um, so the ITC or the PTC would be worth more if you were in a community that's a disadvantaged community. But the, when you start to define like an EJ community, people might picture, you know, deep blue urban areas. But the reality of it is, when you map it out, when you actually map the communities that meet this standard, it's bright red. It's almost all red. Um, so yeah, New York City, parts of it for sure. But a lot of rural counties would be rural counties, by the way, that have space to build you know utility scale solar farms. Um, a lot of those places would be benefactors here. So there needs to be some of that education about this is really a giveaway to you and your constituents. And we're willing to do it because we think that sticking up for disadvantaged communities is always the right thing to do, no matter who they are. So I think there are some wins to be had. We just need this craziness to, to subside. And I, I don't think any of us know when that's actually going to happen. So we're talking about budget reconciliation, but that is not the only tool that Democrats have at their disposal. Uh, notably, they also can use the Congressional Review Act, the CRA, that allows Congress to reject by a simple majority vote in both chambers any rule adopted by the executive branch, with the exception that it has to have been finalized within 60 session days for the Senate and legislative days for the House. Um, but that actually means, because there's session days, that this could go back several months So, for example, uh, a July 2020 rule from the Council of Environmental Quality under the Trump administration that reforms and expedites the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, which is a process for reviewing projects with significant environmental impacts. That is something the Democrats could undo and seek to make it more environmentally robust. There's also executive action, and according to Umair Irfan at Vox, who actually spoke with a Biden team member about this, there are at least 10 executive actions that the Biden administration wants to pursue right off the bat. Some of those are requiring aggressive methane pollution limits for new oil and gas operations, using the federal government procurement system uh, to drive forward 100% clean energy and zero emissions vehicles. 
seeking to reduce emissions through new fuel economy standards aimed at ensuring 100% of new light and medium duty vehicles are electrified and that there are improvements for heavy duty vehicles. There's also appliance and building efficiency standards uh, requiring public companies to disclose climate risks and greenhouse gas emissions in their operations and supply chains um, and, and more. And we'll link to that in our show notes. So yeah, there's no one big climate and energy bill that Democrats are going to, you know, pass in one fell swoop. But there is a lot of action they can take on a lot of different fronts. And just to clarify my earlier points, I have seen several proposals that might fly that would be akin to policy. So something that would look like a clean energy standard, something that would look like not cap and trade specifically. So there are ideas out there. I want to be clear about that. And only the Senate parliamentarian can determine whether or not they fly. Um, you know, no amount of my opinion changes that, that, uh, it's a Senate parliamentarian is going to determine that. And so if you are Democrats, you might try some of this stuff and and not put it in your budget bill until you know what it is, but, you know, have some back and forth, have the committee chairs, have some back and forth, the Senate parliamentarian and say, Hey, this is what we're looking at. Does this seems like it, like it'll fly. We never got firm yes or no answers, but you can get a sense of, you know, whether you're on the right track. And in terms of the ambition here, I mean, we mentioned Joe Manchin earlier. We already saw him really spearhead and ultimately pass in collaboration with uh, Senator Lisa Murkowski this big energy bill. It passed as part of the stimulus and, and spending bill that uh, happened at the end of 2020. But my wonder there is just how much more is Manchin going to be willing to do if he already got basically the list of things that he likes, like, you know, spending on federal lands for renewables, uh, carbon capture and sequestration programs, energy storage got funding. Uh, but these are technical solutions. They were not grand sweeping programs that infused a bunch of cash into broad decarbonization. However, they amounted to some of the biggest energy policy we've seen in a while. But my wonder is how much appetite does Manchin have to do more? And what does going bigger look like? Well, and, and that's why I said earlier, um, I don't know this, I'm speculating, but it might be that the fastest path to reconciliation runs through Susan Collins or, or Mitt Romney more so than Joe Manchin. I don't know that. I'm just speculating that I could say, or, or you know, I could see there being some Republicans who want to see some massive infrastructure investment. Now, that might not be a bill that has every single thing Democrats love in it, but um, I could see Republicans being willing to spend upwards of a trillion, two trillion dollars on something that they actually believed would help spur a recovery from the COVID-related recession. I don't think that's unforeseeable. The interesting thing is that West Virginia plays such a key role in this because you have Manchin is the chair of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. And then the Republican senator from uh, West Virginia is the ranking member, so the top Republican on the Environment and Public Works Committee. So basically, like if we just send a check to every West Virginia voter, maybe we can just get whatever legislation we, we want. Like you guys that's good, just the right? price to pay. Like you've seen some stuff on Twitter, like turn West Virginia into Wakanda, you know, and we just get whatever we want. How many people live in West Virginia? 1.7 million. I've looked it up and I've done the math. I'm like, if you sent everybody like a $10,000 check or $50,000 check, like what would it take? Oh my gosh. This is just handed out. All price uh, on like a big climate bill. We'll have to spend a few more nights at the casino to rally up that cash among or ourselves. Or just do a anyway. SPAC. <laughs> or just SPAC attack it. SPAC. Um, 
Well, you mentioned the states and we haven't got into it in this show and we don't have to, but it's another important point that coming out of the 2020 election, Republicans maintained control of, you know, most, I think all state legislatures in the election and in fact gained some ground. So there's a huge amount of Republican control at that level. They now have control of you know, gerrymandering and they can redistrict. So that could change the makeup of Congress in two, four years. Um, So we have to also watch the state level and see how these national level political fights that we're talking about kind of trickle down and express themselves through state level policymaking, which is ultimately where the rubber hits the road and a lot of things energy related. But to wind up now, you know, again, before we take a little bit of a break and reevaluate what we want to do with this podcast, um, I guess, what are your guys' thoughts on on, on the on just how we heal and move forward? Are you at this moment not ready to use those words and you think it's time to be, you know, uncomfortable and sit with just where we're at? Or is there kind of a light at the end of the tunnel here? I think, first of all, a lot of the conversations on healing focus on the Trump voters. But, you know, I think that there's healing that needs to be done on the other side because there was a lot of people, there was a millions of people in this country that saw this happening, that this was not a surprise to them uh, because this has been escalating over years and people have been trying to pull the fire alarm. It's deeply frustrating for those people. I count myself as one of them that like when we were trying to pull the fire alarm, nobody would answer the bell. Now, second, I think the place to heal is where I think people like Shane and I can really get together on you know both sides of the aisle is we need to unite behind you know protecting our democracy that's not a policy issue right like we need we need republicans who care about the constitution care about law and order care about voting and making sure that people aren't suppressed and that votes are counted accurately, efficiently, quickly. And we need to, and there's so many points of failure in the system that have been identified in this process over the last couple of months, whether it's in the actual voting process or once the voting ends and there's this three month gap where there's all these different points of failure that Donald Trump was trying to leverage to overturn an election. That's dangerous. So we need to have, I think, Republicans who care about democracy and Democrats come together for like real structural reform on, you know, supporting our democracy, both from the propaganda and the voting, electoral college, all of that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I hope people, you know, begin to, to, I will use the word heal, but, but what I would like to see, interestingly, um, similar to what Brandon said is, it's okay to acknowledge, you know, why people need to heal. And like Brandon said, it's not just one group of people. You've got to look at why everyone is frustrated or, you know, has been. What I'd love to see is for prominent Republicans and Democrats. So, I mean, the highest ranking ones uh, elected in the government come out together and say unequivocally um, to whoever will listen, any news station that will carry it, that it was a free and fair election. The result is what it is. They understand that some people are happy about it and some people are not, but that, you know, at the highest levels of government, we're able to tell you that there were no, you know, signs of fraud, all this sort of stuff, all the good stuff that you want to say to give people confidence in the election. But then I'd also like people to point out that it's understandable why it was easy to manipulate people. There's so much time in between when the earliest person voted and when the last vote was counted. There are so many shifts in the numbers because, you know, votes come in overnight or mail-in ballots. 
none of this was criminal. This has been investigated. So I'm not saying that it is, but for people to understand that we could structurally change the voting process to make it safer, easier, more accessible, and more transparent. So that when there is a disagreement about who should win an election, there's really no way to disagree about who did win an election because everyone sort of had access to the same set of facts. It was tabulated quickly and efficiently. Um, you knew the result before you went to bed or soon thereafter, and it was easy to certify and verify. And then I'd also like to see, and I think this will require a constitutional amendment, but I'd like to see the president-elect, whoever that is at any given time, take office almost immediately after that certification process is done. You don't need a month anymore. There were reasons for it, constitutionally speaking, but if you had, you vote today, you find out who won tomorrow, you certify next week, president takes office eight days later, this kind of stuff couldn't happen. And not that it's ever excusable, it's not. But people were led to believe by the leader of the free world that it was fraud and there was enough uncertainty and ambiguity out there to let that belief fester for much longer than it should have. Yeah. Well, having spent more than a decade now in the media somehow, um, I really hope that it's uh, there's some way to regulate or hold accountable, you know, disinformation. And it's and it's not always an outright lie, but when things are, you know, when there's gaslighting or false equivalency, and I hope that the media is held accountable to giving the right context. That is really the role that they're supposed to have and the role they play in democracies. And I think social media companies are now being looped into that discussion as well. And frankly, I'm really proud of what we did on this show of like trying to, at least for the people who are really engaged on climate and energy, dispel some of the misinformation on one side or the other, break through those echo chambers. I'm not suggesting we are have the power that Fox News does, but you know, I think we did always you know, create that space to understand one another. And I learned a ton. And I always take with me something something that uh, Brandon said, where, you know, I'll always have one hand out ready to sort of like reach out and bring someone along, but I'll always have my other hand ready to fight and move forward and, and progress things and, and be bold where I need to. And I hope that's something that doesn't go away in all of this. It's like the hardest time to make this this argument that you should reach out to anyone and have a difficult conversation, because I think a lot of people, myself included, are just upset but i hope that that willingness among you know i think this goes really more local uh to have with your family members and friends and church colleagues and whomever um you know discussion about things we do have in common and set a new foundation and agree on that i think those conversations are actually more important than ever and i hope that we don't get further away from them i think my conclusion is i learned a lot from shane and i felt like we found a a lot more common ground uh, once we started talking and got to know each other. And I feel like there could be a lot done between Democrats and conservatives like Shane. I just don't know what the Republican Party is anymore. I'm not sure that Shane is representative of the Republican Party. Um, and so I don't know if, if Democrats can work in a bipartisan way because it's unclear to me what is really who's in charge of the Republican party anymore. And it's it's unclear to me too. I think if I could swap it out, I might say, you know, climate policy is nonpartisan rather than, than bipartisan, because maybe it isn't bipartisan. Maybe what I'm trying to say is it's not, it doesn't have to be a Democrat priority. It's an American priority. Um, And I, and and I think Brandon, one of the things that, that we've done really well, and I hope our listeners have enjoyed both in our, in our personal lives as friends, but also on the show and all of us here is, Nuance matters and and feeling safe, like you have the time 
to get into that nuance, which I think Julia, we've you've done a really good job on, and we've done a good job on this show, matters because if you know if you say on Fox News or, or CNN, what did you think about last night? And maybe maybe what you were trying to say is it was awful, but you know your takeaway was that you're glad everyone's alive. You said, well, you know, first I'm glad everyone's alive, and then they cut away, and now you are like the poster boy for Nazi Germany. When what I'd like to do is like take the time to say all the things I want to say, and then here's where I'm frustrated, and here's where I'm hopeful, and here's you know, where I, I, I totally see your point of view. And here's where I have a different point of view. I don't even think that's permitted on most mediums anymore. And so when people get together for Christmas and they haven't had the time to sit down, like I know if I go meet Brandon for a beer, I could say, look, I mean, I, I got to bounce something off you and I know it's going to annoy you, but I just, I want to tell you the way I'm thinking about it. Then, you know, that's, I can do that. But if you don't have that space to do that, you're never going to talk to people who you don't, who you don't agree with on everything and find that you do agree on a lot of things. Yeah, I hope that we can strip national politics out of everything because I actually don't think that defines every interaction we have in the world. It is hard sometimes when you say you know how someone voted and it's like, well, geez, how can I even commence this conversation when I know what I think you stand for? Uh, but I just wonder when I look especially on climate and clean energy, how much red states are actually doing on deploying renewables right now. That happened because someone saw value in it. Someone had that conversation and they pulled the ideology out of it and they just talked about the solution. And especially when you go more local, I think there's more appetite than than we think. And maybe it's not convincing climate denialists to get involved. It's about com- convincing someone who's just apathetic or doesn't know how to engage how to get a little more involved. So that's the kind of like reaching out, hand out thing that I hope continues to happen, even if they're kind of tricky conversations. But yes, I agree that the bipartisan term is harder today to, to carry than ever before. Um, but I do hope that we can come back and, and get on the podcast here at some point in the future after we take a little while to collect our thoughts, maybe think about different themes or a series we could do that's a little more limited and, you know, find ways to keep this conversation going because it has been so fun to do. I really have to say. It, I'll tell you guys, and I want our, our listeners to hear this because I could tell you over a beer anytime, but um, I have learned so much substantively from each of you, but also I, a world that I've never seen. I mean, one thing that I bring back to my work a lot is without this perspective, without the, some of the people I've met through you both, um, just the time we've spent together, conversations we've had, life experiences that are different, um, my ability to process information is significantly better um, than it was prior. And so I'm really grateful for that. And I, and I hope our listeners got at least a, a small piece of the reward that I got out of this and, and, and are able to be a little more thoughtful in some of these issues. We love well. you too, Shane. Oh. <laughs> and I've honestly loved the conversations we've had with people who obviously aren't just you guys, but like Tony Seba on the future, like the future of technology. We had on Saul Griffith most recently. We had on David Roberts. We had some quotes from Greta in Vienna that Brandon got pulled on his journalist hat and ran up to her with the microphone and, and got that feedback. Um, Rihanna Gunn Wright, who is one of the architects of the Green New Deal, Varshini Prakash at the Sunrise Movement. Shane uh. went to a, a soccer game with Varshini Prakash as a result of this connection and collaboration. And, you know, it's just. That's wild. Yeah, that happened, right? <laughs> yeah, that did happen. And think of how, like, think of how triumphant it felt julia you've always had press credentials but like walking into these beautiful government buildings in vienna with the head of the un and several presidents with suits on and press passes and it, it kind of sucks that we're wrapping it all up in like sweatpants in our apartments <laughs> some, some, i put on a real real dress today guys <laughs> i went for it <laughs> 
Uh, I know. I don't think it's the end. And this, this whole episode's been a bit bumbly and, and you know, uh, not as organized as usual. But I feel like it's authentic to just how I feel anyway of just like heading into 2021. As someone told me, 2021 is 2020 with bad bangs. It's just like not off to a great start. Um, but, you know, we will soldier on. And uh, and that's, I think, where we'll leave it for this episode. I hope everyone will continue subscribing because we will be back in some form or another. So stay tuned for what we have coming up and we'll alert you guys through social media and other outlets. For now, though, I'm Julia Piper with Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>